The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to today's meeting of the Velshi Band Book Club. I'm MSNBC's Ali Velshi. There are three reasons why a work of literature can make a lasting cultural impact. The words, the story, or the author. In the case of Margaret Atwood and her stable of literature, the answer is all three, resoundingly. Today on the Velshi Band Book Club, we're going to speak with Margaret Atwood on two books, her magnum opus, The Handmaid's Tale, and her modern retelling of William Shakespeare's The Tempest, entitled Hag Seed. But before we get to those words and those stories, let's discuss the author, Margaret Atwood, and her remarkable contribution to literature and culture. A Canada native like myself, Atwood started writing at just five years old. Her body of work is vast, to say the least, including some 18 collections of poetry, nearly 30 books, eight children's books, two graphic novels, and more. While Atwood's work covers numerous topics and genres, they all share her unique style of prose and her distinct feminist perspective. Atwood masterfully wields myth, fairy tale, historical reality, and gendered relationships to explore feminism or, as she prefers to call it, social realism. Beyond the role of women in society, Atwood's work has scrutinized the relationship between humans and animals, identity, religion, and the role of government in society. It's really no surprise that her literature has not just remained relevant, including enduring bestsellers, television adaptations, and onstage productions, but has become part of the very fabric of our culture. Every single book, poem, and article tells a message. One we need to listen to. Generations to come will be reading Margaret Atwood. That much is certain. So without further ado, let's look at the words and open the cover of The Handmaid's Tale. If you're among the minority of Velshi Band Book Club members who have yet to experience The Handmaid's Tale from either the book, television, stage, or film adaptations, here's the plot. In a near future, a totalitarian theocratic military dictatorship known as Gilead has overthrown the U.S. government. The new regime reorganizes society using an extreme interpretation of the Old Testament. Women are the lowest-ranking class, prevented from owning property, reading, writing, and, of course, deprived of control over their own reproductive functions. Environmental catastrophes have rendered much of the population infertile, so the government has deployed a form of forced surrogacy, a la the handmaids in the book of Genesis. Our narrator and heroine, known only as Offred in the book, a slave name, meaning literally of Fred, of her commander, is assigned to one such family. Weeks after President Trump's inauguration in 2017, The Handmaid's Tale saw a resurgence, hitting the New York Times bestsellers list after nearly three decades in print. The fictional world that Atwood created felt suffocatingly close in that moment. The writing was on the wall and on the pages of Margaret Atwood's magnum opus for what felt like a distinctly possible future. Protesters even took to wearing the red full-length dress and white bonnet, synonymous with The Handmaid's in the book. What is that saying? Life imitates art? A few years and one administration later, the themes intrinsic to The Handmaid's Tale are discussed on news networks like MSNBC every single day, including the increased degradation of women's reproductive rights, the rise of autocratic regimes, and flagrant disregard for environmental issues. The Handmaid's Tale also deals deftly with book banning and censorship in Gilead and in real life. There's one particularly powerful scene in The Handmaid's Tale that illustrates the irony in banning this book. Starting on page 38, Offred recalls a time before the government was overthrown, when she saw people burning books and magazines in a local park as a child. 
A woman asks if she would like to participate in the burning, calling it good riddance to bad rubbish. She goes on to describe the memory, quote, I threw the magazines into the flames. It rifled open in the wind of its burning. Big flakes of paper came loose, sailed into the air, still on fire. Parts of women's bodies turning to black ash in the air before my eyes, end quote. It's hard to imagine that a title so ubiquitous could face any successful calls for a ban, but there have been many. There's a laundry list of reasons The Handmaid's Tale has been targeted, most commonly profanity, sex, and violence, which is the triumvirate of objections to many books across the nation. The thing is, The Handmaid's Tale is deeply unsettling and is deeply uncomfortable to read, but isn't that the point? One band book club member wrote in saying, quote, the books that inspire the most thought and discourse are the ones that make us the most uneasy. They should be heralded, never banned. They are as necessary to humanity's growth and evolution as the air we breathe, end quote. I'm thrilled to welcome the incomparable Margaret Atwood, author of The Handmaid's Tale, to the Velshi Band Book Club. I'm one of those old-fashioned people for whom truth actually still matters. And I'm hoping that we're going to get back to that. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Margaret, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here. A pleasure to be here, wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about uh, your book, The, the Handmaid's Tale. It, it may be an obvious and rhetorical question, but why do you think it is targeted so frequently and so consistently? Well, first of all, not teaching a book in a high school is not the same as totally and completely banning it. It was banned for years in a couple of dictatorships, uh, the one in Spain and the one in Portugal, it could not be published there at all. So the Portuguese and the Spanish editions were published in the New World. Um, so Brazil and, and Argentina. So that's total banning. You, you can't get a hold of it at all. And I'm sure that that none of us would say that parents should not have any input at all to what their kids read in school. Uh, we would all agree about that. And we'd probably also agree that there are age considerations. For instance, War and Peace is not for seven-year-olds, not because of the sex, blasphemy, and violence, but because of the big words. So it's always going to be a negotiation, and there has never been a time when you could publish absolutely anything. So that time has never existed. The, the goalposts have moved. And I think we would probably all draw the line at, at child pornography using real children or even child pornography. So it's going to be a discussion. And why The Handmaid's Tale? It's the sex of violence and also the fact that this totalitarian regime um, is a theocracy which purports to be Christian. So they have, of course, distorted everything, but you, you see that going on all around you anyway today. So the question I was asking myself was, if there were to be a totalitarianism in the United States, what form would it take? Wouldn't be communist. So what would it be? It would probably revert to the 17th century when the United States in the New England colonies started as a Christian theocracy. 
And that's a huge theme in The Handmaid's Tale. In fact, uh, some people have called it a religious critique. You make a point to separate God from Gilead, the government theocracy, of Fred, the protagonist, even says in a prayer, quote, I don't believe for an instant that what is going on here is what you meant. Uh, A member of our band book club, Deborah Wright, who is a Presbyterian minister, wrote in on this topic, quote, I'm enthralled with the portrayal of the struggle with toxic religion in The Handmaid's Tale. I'm reminded that this marks the 100th anniversary of Harry Emerson Fosdick, the most famous Protestant preacher of the day, his most famous sermon at the First Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. Shall the fundamentalist win? It launched the great fundamentalist modernist divide in American Christianity. Uh, Deborah goes on to write, shall the fundamentalists win? What do you think? Shall they win? (laughs) Well, once you get into it, and I have to say that some of the people most appreciative of The Handmaid's Tale are people with um, theological training. They, They know what these arguments have been about, and they probably also know that the reason that the United States decided to have freedom of worship is that at that time in history, there had been centuries of horribly destructive religious warfare in Europe, and they didn't want that happening in the United States. So freedom of worship, and that's pretty fundamental, I think, to what the United States originally purported to be about. Um, So shall they win? Well, they've won quite a bit politically, but that's not the same as winning in the sense of coming up with an acceptable, viable form of Christianity that people could see as actually being about what Jesus was teaching. Okay, love your neighbor. How much of that do you see amongst the people who purport to be fundamentalist Christians? They're not doing a lot of neighbor loving. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that the book uh, hits on right off the top is women's bodies, uh, women's rights, reproductive matters, and abortion. We talk about access to abortion uh, and the various implications of preventing abortions for women a lot on this show. I was particularly struck by a passage in chapter six when of Fred and of Glenn, uh, two friends, handmaids, are walking back from shopping and they see on the wall that is central to the book, hanged bodies. And the quote is, the men wear white coats like those worn by doctors or scientists. These men, we've been told, are like war criminals. It's no excuse that what they did was legal at the time. Their crimes are retroactive. They have committed atrocities and must be made into examples for the rest, though this is hardly needed. No woman in her right mind these days would seek to prevent a birth, end quote. The the part that struck me there is their crimes are retroactive. It's reminiscent of some of the abortion legislation that we're actually seeing here in the United States. The real question is, does the state own your body? In the case of, of men right now, not, though if they brought back the draft, that would be a claim on men's bodies as well. But But if you're drafted, the state has a responsibility and an obligation to pay for your food, your lodging, your clothing, um, and your medical bills. So if they're gonna draft women's bodies, which is what it amounts to, uh, they should pay all those things. You talked to me about when you wanted to write about a totalitarian, authoritarian state, you wondered what form it would take. And back in 1985, when you wrote this, you uh, thought it would be a theocracy. Totalitarianism and authoritarianism are in better shape than they were when you wrote it. Do you still think that if it were the United States and, and we were to get that kind of authoritarian rule, that it would be based in religion? That's already happening in a number of states. So the excuse for all of these laws that you've been talking about is is really a religious one. It's based on a religious belief. And uh, let us say here that we must distinguish between a belief and opinion and and actual evidence-based factual knowledge. And the difference is that you can prove or disprove the third one, but you cannot prove or disprove the first one. A belief is a belief. Uh, It's not evidence-based. And an opinion can be based either on a belief or on a set of provable facts. And uh, all of these, these ideas that a cluster of cells is a human being, that's a belief. 
Let me ask you about what you were thinking in, in 1985. It, it's, it's a dystopian novel. It's about a future that could be bad, and in this particular case, bad for women, but really bad for everybody, bad for democracy, bad for society. There were some winners in it, but it was kind of grim generally. Do you feel better or worse about the future in 2022 than you did in 1985? Oh, I'd say quite a lot worse, uh, but, but on several different fronts. However, there are some, there are some bright lights as always. But what was happening in 1984 when I was actually writing this book and in 1981 when I first thought of writing it, we had had a couple of decades of, of considerable turmoil. We had had um, civil rights. We had had the Vietnam War. We'd had the assassination of President Kennedy. We'd had the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were in the middle of the Cold War. Kids uh, were taught that they had to get under their desk if the bomb went up. Uh, <laughs> pretty futile. And then we had the summer of love, and then we had the public appearance of the women's movement, which had been simmering away um, undercover and suddenly hit public view. And then we had the 70s, a lot of activity on the women's movement front many different sorts of laws were changed you could now have a credit card all by yourself stuff like that so then in 80 we have an election and who gets elected ronald reagan gets elected we are told that there's something called the trickle down effect that meant that rich people could get very rich and and then some of that richness would trickle down to other people and he started dismantling the New Deal that came in the 30s and uh, continued on to a certain extent in the 50s. Um, so we had then a big pushback against 70s women's movement stuff. And we saw the rise of the religious right as a political force. And since I'm a person who believes that people will do what they say they will do, should they have the power to do it, um, I, I read what they said they would do. And one of the things they would like to do is, was put women back into the home. So the question is, how do you stuff them back in there? If they're out running around having jobs and bank accounts and all right. these evil things they should be allowed to do, how do, how do you cut that off? And... Um, Technology had already given us the perfect instrument, namely the credit card. Why are you more worried you know? today then than you were then? It's because something that was a nascent movement in the 80s has now become pretty full-fledged. And uh, people have seen raising religious slogans as a pathway to political power. And they have taken that pathway and, and many of them have succeeded. Um, but it is a sham version of of Christianity, in my opinion. In fact, is it, is it anything to do with, with uh, Christianity? I wonder, Donald Trump made it sound like he was wrapped in sort of religious conservatism, even though his history doesn't suggest any of that. But it was a pathway to power. So in, in The Handmaid's Tale, were you predicting that religion itself, or at least perversions of religion, would become the, the eminent form of, of government? Or was that all meant to be like a pathway to power and religion was just a convenient cloak? Well... We're just talking about the United States here, okay? We're not even talking about Canada. It would be a lot harder in Canada. We're not talking about England because they had their religious war in, in the 17th century. So whatever else they might do, they're unlikely to do that. Um, but the United States never had a religious war. They had a war, <laughs> but it wasn't a religious war. If anything, in the American Civil War, the, the Bible thumping was done by the North. Um, so, yeah, they've never had that out-and-out -out religious war, but they had watched the religious wars going on in Europe, and that is why they wrote the Constitution in the way that they did. They wanted freedom to worship so that people would not um, murder one another in the name of, of having one religion conquer over another religion. And um, I think the thing to ask about religion is not what religion do you practice, but how are you practicing it? Uh -huh. uh, are you practicing it to harm other people, or are you practicing it as a form of 
support and consolation uh, for yourself. And there's a big difference. Let me ask you about a passage uh, on page 174 that struck me, given uh, the amount of attention that we're giving to what happened on January 6, 2021. Uh, the, the words from the book are, keep calm, they said on television. Everything is under control. That was when they suspended the Constitution. They said it would be temporary. There wasn't even any rioting in the streets. People stayed home at night watching television, looking for some direction. There wasn't even an enemy you could put your finger on. Uh, that hits home as you sit here in a world where there are uh, completely different views as to what happened during an attempted insurrection on January 6th. This idea that the news was what your characters in The Handmaid's Tale depended on uh, to tell them the truth because other good, reliable sources of information had been cut off. Yes. Well, the first thing any respectable coup does is um, seize the uh, communication channels. So they, they head for the television station and the radio station uh, as one of their very first acts. And that, of course, would have happened. Uh, the difference between January the 6th and what happens in The Handmaid's Tale is that what happens in The Handmaid's Tale was better organized. But same idea. And I think you came within a whisker of uh, having martial law declared. In fact, we now know from uh, messages that have been revealed that that was in the minds of some of the insiders who were uh, hoping for a coup. I want to look at one of your other works. It, a few years before you published The Handmaid's Tale, you published uh, something called Second Words, in which you write, I began as a profoundly apolitical writer, but then I began to do what all novelists and some poets do. I began to describe the world around me. Now, you have not stopped writing in all of that time. Far from it. You write a great deal. Tell me about the evolution of, of your politics. Um, were they sort of baked when you wrote The Handmaid's Tale and, and the world is unfolding as you uh, as you predicted? Or has your politics changed in any way? Yeah, I don't have any baked politics. <laughs> I uh, didn't grow up in a family that had baked politics. They were scientists and scientists like to look at evidence um, and they like to test evidence and they like to see whether the, the hypothesis that they've been presented with is true. So I'm one of those old-fashioned people for whom truth actually still matters. And I'm hoping that we're going to get back to that and stop talking about a post-truth world, because there still are some verifiable truths. Uh, for instance, Napoleon did not win the Battle of Waterloo like that. And um, Russia has not captured Ukraine. So more than 30 years ago, you wrote this book. And some of the stuff that you wrote about is seeming very real and very tangible now. If you don't want to talk about a post-truth world, that sounds hopeful. You, you seem to think that there's a world in which facts and truth and religion, the way it's meant to be practiced, not sort of extreme uh, interpretations of it, can prevail. So if you're writing the, the follow-up today, to the dystopian world that you painted in 1984 and 1985. What does that look like? Well, I did that. I did write The Testaments, which is which is less about uh, our world today than about how you get out of Gilead. Um, and one of the ways you get out of totalitarian regimes is that people inside them stop believing in them. Um, because none of these regimes come in saying, uh, we are evil, bad people, and we're going to ruin your life. They, they all come in saying, we're going to make things better for you. And they do make some things better for some people. They wouldn't stay in power very long if nobody was getting any benefit whatsoever out of anything that was being done. Uh, we're doing a program called Practical Utopias, and it will be on an interactive learning platform called Disco. And we're going to examine the material bill. That is, where would you live? What would you wear? What, what would you eat? What's the energy source going to be if you're making a kind of Minecraft or Lego better world? Um, but then we're going to look at governance. Who's going to run this? What sort of government do you want to have? Do you want a democracy? Do you want a totalitarianism? Do you want a monarch? 
Do you want a council of wise people? Where are you going to get them? Uh, so what form will this take? What do we mean by democracy? If you propose a democracy, what kind? And people are going to have to think seriously about the upsides and downsides um, of forms of government. Um, so I, I think it's hopeful that so many people are interested in, in doing that because we were going through a period before Russia invaded Ukraine in which there had been a certain amount of eye rolling about democracy uh -huh. doesn't really work. Maybe we should just have strong men and they can all uh, sit in a room together and divide up all the loot, which is what happens when you have that situation. So we saw some authoritarian regimes arising in various parts of the world, and we see one coalescing before our very eyes, and that would be uh, Russia today. It's gotten a lot more clamped down than it was before this war started. So people are getting a look at the alternative. So if you don't want democracy, what do you want? And um, let's be serious about this. Let's be serious about it. I, I think that's interesting because what we have is social media. I mean, you and I connected on social media. You're an avid social media user. But because of social media, there are a whole bunch of people who are being misinformed about exactly what you just said, democracy and the kind of government you have. And what we are seeing around the world in America, but as well in other places, people are willingly making choices in which they cast a ballot for a government or a way of doing things that will ultimately reduce their rights. We we saw it happen in France. We've seen it happen in, in many parts of Eastern Europe. We've just seen it happen again uh, in Hungary, and we see it continue in the United States. Given the choice, some people are choosing to give up their rights. What's the parallel between that and how you predicted the future when you wrote The Handmaid's Tale and The Testament? Well, Handmaid's Tale was not a question of people voting their rights away. It was a question of a, of a coup. So the overthrow of an elected government and the substitution of martial law uh, and with the ultimate result of a, of a theocracy. So uh, those are two different situations. I think for the one that you're describing, you would <clears throat> have to look back at Hitler. He was elected, and then he went about making it so that, that nobody else ever would be. Uh -huh. So people like that get in, uh, and then they say, I am the only one who can fix it. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? We've heard that uh, before. And everybody, yeah, oh, oh, goody, I'm glad somebody's going to fix it. So so the the appeal of, of figures like that is if things are going pear-shaped, they have considerable appeal because they claim to be able to fix it. And that is also the appeal of certain kinds of revolutions, which are the the flip side of that coin. So French Revolution happens when taxes have gone up, when there's a heat wave, and when the price of bread goes up, made people very crabby, and they, they finally um, rose up. So those are two kinds of things. So I'm going to do my little circle diagram for you. It's a circle. Up at the top, you've got tyranny. Down at the bottom, you've got chaos. Through the middle, you've got, let's call it liberal democracy or uh, people leading reasonably peaceful, independent lives. Um, and then you have um, the right and the left, and you have an arrow going up towards tyranny on either side. You can get there either way. And then you've got an arrow going down towards chaos on either side. You can get there either way. Once you're in chaos, you've got two great big arrows that go from chaos directly up to tyranny. You can just skip the middle part. And that's how things go. And revolutions are not called revolutions because they're going to make everybody equal. They're called revolutions because the image is a wheel and it turns. So it's the wheel of fortune. Those at the bottom rise up and get up to be at the top. And those at the top fall down and are crushed underneath. And uh, that is what um, political power struggles are about. And the question is, are we going to have fairly peaceful political power structures run by voting? <laughs> or are we going to have people shooting each other in the streets? Yeah. Uh, it's a book club. So I, I want to ask you something that a number of our uh, members wrote in wanting to know. 
What and who do you read? Well, just for you, I brought my 1984 socks. <laughs> 1984, so one sock says, uh, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. That's this sock. And the other sock says, down with Big Brother. Very inspirational socks. Uh, so I was traumatized by George Orwell as a child. If you do the math, me being born in 1939, so 1949, I'm 10, uh, and I read Animal Farm, which I think is going to be like Wind in the Willows or, you know, Winnie the Pooh. I think it's going to be about animals, and I'm completely ruined by it. Because I, I know nothing about Stalin or Trotsky or any of the things that it's an allegory about. I was just very um, upset about that horse. <laughs> The horse that works and works and works and works and works to make things better for people, and then it gets worn out, and the regime sells it to a glue factory. <laughs> so that flattened me. And then along comes 1984, uh, just in time for me to acquire a copy of it in the local pharmacy. It was the age when they were putting trashy covers on great literature and selling them in, in the drugstore. And uh, I think a lot of people, you know, read War and Peace thinking it was going to be a sleazy sex novel. Um, but I, I certainly had my copy of 1984, which has a suitably trashy 50s cover on it. And I was pretty riveted by that. And at the same time, I read a book called Darkness at Noon, which was by Arthur Kessler. And it was his, his big book. He wrote it under those kinds of conditions, you know, if he got caught writing it, that would have been it for him. And um, smuggled it out. It was a huge hit at the time, and it was Stalin's show trials from the inside. So I've been pretty interested in those kinds of regimes all my life, since I spent my childhood in World War II. You do ask the question when you get a bit older, why did this happen? Uh -huh. you know, how come we ended up in this? Uh, so I've got a big library devoted to those kinds of books, but those are generally, and some of them are novels, but a, a lot of them are, are history books. So that's on, on that side of things. On the other side of things, I do read a lot of novels. And I read a lot because, again, um, there wasn't much else to do when I was a child. I'm such a reading addict. I will read the backs of the cereal boxes. I'm, I'm addicted to wine labels, um, especially French ones, because they're so over the top. Um, and I will read all of the promises on beauty products. Are you surprised by how relevant this conversation about <laughs> The Handmaid's Tale is? When you were writing it, did you have any idea that this would be this big and relevant a story 30 years plus later? No. Um, so what were we doing in, in the 80s? Very cornily, I started writing this book in 1984. And equally cornily, I was living in West Berlin at the time. So the Cold War was still going on. The big wall was still in place. Checkpoint Charlie, uh, all of those uh -huh. stories, Tinker Tailor's Spy, that was all still happening. And I did get across to East Germany, to East Berlin. We did go to Czechoslovakia, and we went to Poland at that time. And they, they were all quite different, but they were all under totalitarian regimes. So then the wall comes down in 1989, just in time for us to be launching the Handmaid's Tale film in Berlin. Wow. <laughs> and we show it in West Berlin, and we have the aesthetic discussions that people have, you know, the acting, the set, all of those things that people talk about when they talk about movies. And then we went across to East Berlin, and we showed it there. And that was a very different experience. People were very intent. They threw a lot of bouquets up on the stage, and then they said, this was our life. 
Wow. Meaning not that it had been a totalitarian theocracy, but that you didn't know who you could trust. You didn't know who might be spying on you. And now right. that we've had a peek at the files, we know how true that was. So people ratting out their fellow citizens. And you're seeing that coming in in the United States, too. Uh, bounty hunting, mess up somebody's life by saying they tried to get an abortion, collect $10,000. It's a, it's a, just a recipe for for everybody distrusting everybody else, which is what it was like in East Germany. Um, so then we thought, okay, Cold War's over, yippee, open the gates, let's all go shopping. And you you heard things in that decade, the end of history, free market had triumphed. It was just going to be great. Remember that? No, you uh-huh, don't, because you uh-huh. probably weren't born. But, That's very kind of you, but I was. <laughs> okay, so what do you think we're going to be talking about in 30 plus years from now, given that you've written about it, given that we're experiencing it, given that so many of the things that you've written about are actually happening? Your whole view is that people can and should wake up to that. And if they do, the outcome can change. Do you, do you believe that to be the answer? And do you believe it will happen? There's a lot of moving pieces. Uh, First of all, 30 years, well, let's hope in 50 years, there's still going to be people because we are looking at a climate crisis and we're looking at the kind of changes that that is going to bring and is already bringing. And one of them is going to be food shortages. And you are already seeing that, not so much exactly through that some of it's through that but some of it is just through the fact of what's happening in ukraine a big a big chunk of food has been cut off um so as i said chaos <laughs> then you can go up straight to tyranny because people right. say i can fix it okay so like that so how much how much is this going to move around how much can it be prevented um the news that the changing climate is going to be disruptive doesn't come out of my head it actually comes from the the pentagon and um the other news is that should we succeed in killing the oceans the amount of oxygen available in the air for us to breathe breathe is going to go way down because a lot of that oxygen is made by marine algaes so that's some of the moving pieces if we if we were living in a static state, we could make better informed predictions about which way politics might might go. But we are not living in a static state, and um, everything is connected. Uh, a lot of this panic about women and their bodies and having children probably comes from people looking at the birth rates. Uh-huh. Okay, are we in a falling population? So like that, of course, they they never they never get it right. They want women to have lots of babies, but they don't want to pay for that. It's actually an interesting theme in The Handmaid's Tale, where you you talk about uh, someone assuring these handmaids that once we've got the population numbers to where we need them to be, uh, this won't have to happen anymore. Uh, Obviously, that doesn't come to pass in the book. We're not saying goodbye to Margaret Atwood, just switching gears a little bit. Next, we're examining one of the most famous plays ever written by one of the most enduring authors in all of English history. I'm talking about The Tempest by none other than William Shakespeare. If you haven't read the play since high school English, don't worry. Margaret Atwood wrote a modern adaptation of it, a bestseller called Hagseed, and agreed to discuss with us both The Tempest and Hagseed in a few short moments. This is the Belshiban Book Club. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. 
Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Let's get right into our second Velshi Band book club feature of the day. It's been 12 years since Prospero, former Duke of Milan, was overthrown in a coup by his own brother. 12 years since he and his infant daughter Miranda were left for dead in the middle of the ocean. 12 years since they found an island inhabited by a so-called savage named Caliban and an air spirit named Ariel. And today, 12 years later, Prospero can get his revenge by conjuring up a magic tempest to draw his enemies onto the island, including a court jester, aides, and even his traitorous brother. This is the story of Shakespeare's The Tempest and today's second Velshiban book club feature. Written in 1610, The Tempest is listed as the first of Shakespeare's comedies and the last of his plays to be written alone. It is tragic, comedic, and even by modern standards, romantic. It's a favorite among casual readers of the Bard and academics alike because it ends with many unanswered questions and contains particularly complex characters. The Tempest grapples with numerous themes, including the illusion of justice, the sanctity of family, and colonization. The relationship between Prospero and Caliban draws easy comparison to the colonizer and the colonized. Prospero, the educated nobleman, lands on an island where at first he is disadvantaged. Caliban, a native to the island, introduces Prospero to his land, ultimately making it possible for him to survive. This power dynamic rapidly shifts, and Prospero reduces Caliban to a slave, dismissing him as nothing more than a savage. In 2010, Arizona passed a statute that expressly forbade public and charter schools from teaching courses that, quote, promote resentment toward a race or class of people or advocate ethnic solidarity instead of the treatment of pupils as individuals, end quote. The Tempest was among the banned literature. A former Arizona teacher wrote a blog post in reaction to the law, saying in part, quote, We have been told that we cannot teach any race, ethnic, or oppression-themed lessons or units. I asked if I could start teaching Shakespeare's The Tempest and was told no, due to the themes that are present and the likelihood of avoiding discussions of colonization, enslavement, and racism. I can't believe I have to say it, but apparently I do. Banning The Tempest, or any work of Shakespeare for that matter, is simply detrimental to your child. Stumbling through The Tempest as a sophomore in high school, understanding it a little bit more as a college student, and then revisiting it once again as an adult is a gift. Pick any of Shakespeare's plays or sonnets. Reading it will inspire new ideas, critical ideas, creativity, and inward reflection. You'll see Shakespeare in your most hated Game of Thrones characters, the plot of your favorite 90s movie, Ten Things I Hate About You, even in your most used curse word. And you might not even like it. The language may be frustrating at first. The plots are certainly complex, but you should be able to make that decision. Not an angry school board member or an overreaching law. I'm back now with Margaret Atwood, who, along with The Handmaid's Tale, wrote a modern retelling of The Tempest, New York Times bestseller, Hagseed. Margaret, let's start with Hagseed. You wrote it through the Hogarth Shakespeare Project, a 2016 effort to retell Shakespeare for this modern audience. It coincided with the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, and you included a chapter in your book on writers and writing about The Tempest. Uh, tell me uh, why you were taken by the play and, and, and thought about doing this, this retelling of it. Well, it has a lot of dimensions, but it is also the play of Shakespeare's that comes closest to him writing about what he actually did. So he was in the play, Prospero is essentially the producer director of a play, <laughs> The Tempest. And his special effects guy is, is Ariel. But it also has had over time, it's been the most reinterpreted play of Shakespeare. It was an opera in the 18th century. They added a couple of characters so they would have four voices. They could have quartets. Ferdinand had a brother. There was a female accompanying Miranda, and um, people liked that version. When they went back and tried to do the original Shakespeare one, people didn't like it then. Huh. Um, it got reinterpreted again in the 19th century with Caliban changing from a comic character, which he is, is in the original, to a tragic character. 
because people connected Caliban with slavery, uh, a lot of sympathy for Caliban in the times of abolition, but much suppression of the fact that why he gets deposed by Prospero is that he tries to rape Miranda. So you don't get unmixed characters in, in Shakespeare. Uh, through some eyes, Prospero is the good guy. Through other eyes, he's a tyrant. You named the book Hagseed, which is an insult that Prospero calls uh, Caliban. So you've centralized Caliban to the story as opposed to Prospero. Well, I think he is kind of central because right now that's what people um, end up talking about. But also it's a double insult because it's got the word hag in it, which is a derogatory mention of Caliban's mother, supposedly a, a witch. So you have a very... A complex group of characters. And every time you see a production of it, you're going to see it played differently. Caliban these days is usually shown as a kind of semi-fish. He's got scales. Um, But he claims he's the original possessor of the island. Oh, that isn't entirely true either. Ariel could make the same claim. You know, I grew up in Toronto, so you were everybody's favorite author. Every Canadian kid reads Margaret Atwood. But then I get to the United States and I realize you're actually everybody's favorite author. So the best question that we always have. Some people don't. And and the question, the best question one could ask of their favorite author is, who's your favorite author? You said before that William Shakespeare is actually your favorite author. Yeah, I always pick him because he's safe. Um, But it's it's kind (laughs) of true. Like everything writers say about this kind of stuff, it's kind of true. Um, but he's he's dead, and people can't resent him, whereas if I named somebody living, the others would all be get very mad. Uh, let me ask you, that. instead of an island, your Prospero character, Felix, is in a prison. Tell, tell us about why, why that choice. So I read the play backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards before undertaking this, and everybody in the play is imprisoned in some way at some time. And the last speech of Prospero is the last three words are set me free. So set him free from what? So then I went back through it and looked at them all again and um, decided that the the place for Prospero to be putting on or for Felix to be putting on his revenge play would be a prison in which the uh, actors would be the prisoners and would get to write some of the text um, and it got very meta because of a prison in St. Louis, Missouri said, can we do this? <laughs> can we do a play? Can we write the play of The Tempest as interpreted through Hagseed and put it on in the prison? I said, absolutely. And I was going to get down for it, but then COVID struck. Uh, they have since done it. And I would like to see it you know, done again because I think they did a pretty good job. When I when I messaged you a couple of days ago to say, could you join me on the show? Uh, I want to talk about Hagseed and the Tempest. And you you, you said, did, wait, did Hagseed get banned? Uh, which it hasn't. But when you think about the themes that get the Tempest banned, uh, which seem very broad and, and like much of this book banning, it's all it's very it's broad themes. And as somebody who has had books banned and, and critiqued, what about Hagseed avoids the thing that got Tempest banned in Arizona? Nothing. They would ban that, too. (laughs) That's actually the perfect answer. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Because what the banning seems to be about is let's not have any awkward conversations. So I I realized sometime later, after I'd been through high school in the 50s, that the reason we had mostly 19th century and 18th century texts was that there wasn't any overt sex in them. So there is sex that takes place off stage, which is how people get born, just letting you in on that. But there isn't actually any described sex in those 19th century texts. So things did not get awkward for the teacher. It did leave child minds wondering what was going on in the woods. But... (laughs) But I think that's why they did it. And I, I think a lot of this is the same. They they don't want uproar in the schools. They don't want ferocious arguments. That's my guess. What do you think? 
Uh, I think that's exactly right. We're avoiding awkward conversations, and that serves nobody's purpose. Uh, let's get back into the play The Tempest for a moment. It contends with the power of books, which is perfect for us in Velshi Band Book Club, and the idea of what knowledge can lead to. Act 1, Scene 2, Prospero says, quote, Knowing I loved my books, he furnished me from mine own library with volumes that I prize above my dukedom. End quote. Uh, now, ultimately, Prospero lost his dukedom in Milan. He lost, he gained total control of the island, though, in an almost godlike way because of his books, which leads me to a conversation you and I have had before about books and power. What's your, what's your take on, on that interpretation? Well, uh, that is entirely correct. And Caliban says without his books, he's nothing. Um, but th- these are magic books. And they are the books that he uses to spin his enchantments. Books are, are a human tool, and people go, books are wonderful. But actually, they're a communication device, and they're in, in and of themselves, they're neutral. So you can have uh, wonderful books, you can have terrible books, you can have books that some people think are wonderful and other people think are terrible. Um, so it's like any human tool. There's always a good side of a bad side and a, and a third side that nobody thought about. Let's talk something about that you've written about, and it has a role in The Tempest, God. Prospero's role of God on the island, but we see gods from Greek myth, including Juno, Ceres, Iris come to witness Miranda and Ferdinand's marriage and mention of others. What, in your opinion, is the significance of God and God-like figures in The Tempest? Okay, so first of all, let us be advised that there was censorship in Shakespeare's day. And uh, that applied to mentions of religion of the current day. And you couldn't do religious swears either. There were a lot of religious swears in Elizabethan times, but you couldn't put them on the stage. You, sh- you couldn't say God's blood or any of those things that people used to swear with. And that was because there was a fight going on between the Elizabethan reign, which was sort of high Anglican, let's say, or high Episcopalian, and the Roman Catholics, who took great great exception to it and tried to assassinate her a couple of times. And, and that's partly what that Mary, Queen of Scots versus Elizabeth I thing was about. People were very worried about Catholics. So substitute some Greek gods. <laughs> you could have some divine power present without saying anything about Interesting. G-O-D or, you know, any of the things that you weren't supposed to say. His plays rent, were run by censors on on the subject of censorship. So censors always say, we're doing this for the good of society. They always say that. Sometimes they're right. <laughs> Sometimes they're wrong. Uh, so it's, it's, It was a circumvention then about say, of censors, really. You wanted, they, they, Shakespeare wanted God characters, but didn't, couldn't, didn't, well, want, didn't want the censor stopping. Yeah, I can't read his mind, but Juno and Ceres, in whom nobody believed anymore, were perfectly safe. Very interesting. All right. Let's talk about uh, a a story within a story. Uh, In Act 4, Scene 1, Prospero says, quote, These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which in it inherit shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep, end quote. So Actors is a reference to the Globe Theater. This is relevant to Hagseed because you've made it a play. Uh, this is one of the many times it's clear that The Tempest is a play about putting on a play. Uh, and of course, since the Belshi Band Book Club is telling the story of a story, this aspect of The Tempest struck me, and it's something that you picked up on Hagseed. Of course. That is what uh, Felix, who is the Prospero character, is doing. He's putting on a play about a play within a play as it were. So the mandate of this thing, you know, pick a Shakespeare play and and write a modern novel based on it. It was very broad. So people could could do it as closely or as distantly as they wished. And some of them took a kind of an inspiration, but didn't follow everything in the plot. I took the opposite sort of nitpicky, uh, obsessive compulsive path 
and tried to get everything that was in the original play into my novel, including somebody who plays quite a role in in The Tempest, but isn't seen as a character in it, namely the goddess Fortuna, good fortune. She is the one that Prospero realizes he needs if his stuff is going to work. His, his wizardry seems to be fairly local. He can't project it all around the globe. Somebody has to come within his sphere, and the ship has to come within his sphere in order to be affected. So I put in a character representing the goddess Fortuna, or fortune luck, uh, and I gave her some little luck symbols as necklaces, and she facilitates things for him behind the scenes to get the now government officials uh, who, who betrayed him within his sphere so he can work his magic on them. Uh, I can't have Margaret Atwood on without talking a little bit about uh, political interpretations to these things. So let's go back to The Tempest and Caliban. He and Prospero's relationship makes an easy comparison to colonizer and colonized. In a way, Caliban is sort of a, a foil to Prospero. What's your interpretation of that? Is is Tempest an allegory a, a, about colonization? Shakespeare doesn't do allegories. <laughs> he does symbols, but he doesn't do allegories. So in an allegory, there's a one-to-one correspondence. This means that. He's much more complex than that and much more attentive to human behavior, which is pretty mixed, you have to admit. So some things about Caliban are really good. And he's he's very, when Prospero first arrives, he's very, he, he's actually a, a child. And everything is, is fine until he makes his move on Miranda. And Prospero can't have that. And actually, neither can Miranda. So that's when that happens. I'm sure Shakespeare got some inspiration from his knowledge of the actual North America because that had all that was going on. Fourteen hundred ninety-two, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Um, so that had been going on uh, by his time for more than a century. So, so he was aware of it, but he placed his island in the Mediterranean. <laughs> he didn't place it on the other side of the Atlantic. I'm sure he was inspired by the idea of a desert island, as a did, which meant deserted. It didn't mean it was desert, um, as a lot of people were. So when we look at utopias, ut- literary utopias, they were placed on islands quite regularly until all of the islands got discovered. Um, then a few of them got placed in distant jungles and some in holes underground, but But then we got sci-fi, and they're in a galaxy far, far away and in another time, because we know too much about the planet. It's hard to put them on islands anymore. So it's a a pattern that he was using. There had been uh, people cast up on islands before, and he was inspired by his some knowledge of what was happening in North America, that there were these other people, that their customs were not like ours. Uh, But it's not an allegory because he doesn't do allegories. Margaret Atwood is the author of numerous books, including The Handmaid's Tale and the book we've been discussing today, Hagseed, which is a modern interpretation of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Margaret Atwood, thank you. Thank you. Our thanks to the immeasurable Margaret Atwood, author of so many works of literature, including The Handmaid's Tale and Hagseed. There's so much to learn from her writing and from her words. We're lucky to have her on the Velshi Band Book Club. Next week, we're examining a painful topic that has affected every single American, regardless of socioeconomic status, race, or political party. I'm talking about gun violence. How do you grapple with a wound that cannot heal because it keeps getting torn open again and again? Books, literature, and the conversations they spark can help. We'll be joined by two amazing authors and their painfully timely books, Jody Picot on 19 Minutes and Todd Strasser on Give a Boy a Gun. Thanks so much for listening. The writer and producer of this podcast is Hannah Holland. Our booking producer is Lily Corvo. Associate producers are Chanel Adams, Samantha Brown, Nicole McReynolds, and Jen Maris Perez. Production assistant is Eunice Adekoya. Our senior producers are Jared Blake, Dina Moss, and Alicia Conley. Rebecca Dryden is our executive producer. Our technical director is Bryson Barnes. Our audio engineer is Cedric Wilson. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. 
and Rebecca Cutler is the Senior Vice President for Content Strategy at MSNBC. Search for Velshi Band Book Club wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series. You can also catch Velshi on MSNBC every weekend at 10 a.m. Eastern. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.